the youth enjoyed that all weekend long, being able to worship and be led in worship by this dear group of folks. I told them Friday night I was glad they were all here, but we have guitars, we have keyboards, and we have other things, but I was really welcoming the violin, and she did a great job, as they all did. Take your Bibles and turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 13. John chapter 13, beginning in verse 31. As we talked about two weeks ago, or really three weeks ago, because two weeks ago I talked about the closing of the apologetics conference with, with Dr. Ware and kind of did a wrap-up session on that. But then uh, the week before that we were in John's Gospel and we come back now. And we're at that point where Judas has departed as a matter of fact, the first phrase in verse 31 is, when he, th- when he therefore had gone out, that is when Judas had left the room, he's dipped the morsel with Jesus, and Jesus has revealed that it is Judas who will, re- who will uh, betray him. And Judas got up and went out, and Jesus said, whatever you do, do it quickly. And he moved out to go about doing his deed that uh, is just a, a dastardly deed, if you will. But hear the word of the Lord, beginning verse 31 and reading through verse 38, through the end of this chapter. And I want you to see several things in this that are very important as we wrap up this Disciple Now weekend. It's important for all of us, but youth, I hope you hear this too, because it does kind of fit in a lot with some of the things that Dan talked about, Dr. DeWitt, over this weekend as he preached. When therefore he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. Little children, I am with you a little while longer. and You shall seek me. And as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. Now I say to you also, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Isn't that strange? Jesus just told them he's leaving, but then he said very emphatically, this is what I want you to get. This is what's important. I'm leaving, but I want you to love one another as I've loved you, as you're to love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples. That'll be the badge. That'll be the mark of the Christian if you love one another. And he gets through with that, and Peter says, Lord, where are you going? Missed the whole thing. We do that, don't we? We get so caught up in things of the world and not saturated in the things of the Lord and in his word that that you know, God tries to tell us something clear through his word, and we're thinking about what's on the, on the stove for lunch today. We're thinking about where we're going to go this afternoon. God's trying to deal with us intimately and deeply in his word, and, and we're worried about something else. And we get, that gets over and say, okay, now when do we start? You know, we, we miss it. We do just like Simon Peter did. So, Jesus, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I go, you cannot follow me now but you shall follow me later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? Right now. I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, 
Will you indeed lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, a cock shall not crow until you deny me three times. You know, in this passage, you see, a, you see several things taking place. You see Jesus, after Judas goes out, saying, Okay, now is the time for me to be glorified, and now is the time for my Father to be glorified. Now is the time that the Father will glorify the Son, and all this is going to take place immediately. In John's gospel, the word glory typically is always wrapped up in the crucifixion and the death of Christ, and, and, and ultimately on the basis of that, the resurrection and ascension of Christ. But Jesus says, I want you to understand something. I'm going to be glorified, the Son of Man is going to be glorified, and God the Father is going to be glorified in me. The crucifixion will bring and does bring both glory to the Father and to the Son, to God the Father and God the Son, the first and second person of the Trinity. The first of all, the crucifixion brings glory to the Father in some very simple ways. One, it glorifies His wisdom, His faithfulness, His holiness, and His love. It showed his wisdom in showing how God was wise in providing and being able to provide a plan for the salvation of sinners like you and me, and yet he could be just and the justifier of sinners. It took a lot of wisdom for God to be able to say, I am holy, I am just, and I will only deal with things in a just manner at all times, and yet be just always and still justify you and me who are living in sin and captivated by sin and indeed slaves to sin. It's the wisdom of God. It, it showed him faithful in keeping his promise that he made way back in the garden. You remember after the fall, after Satan tempted Adam and Eve, and they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and, and God said at that point to Adam and to Eve and to the serpent, he said, you, you, know, you, may, have, you may bruise his heel, but he's going to crush your head. Talking about the coming of the Messiah coming of the Savior, the coming of Christ. So God was showed faithful in this crucifixion, also showed him as holy. He, he required the law's demands. The law had to be fulfilled. God is a holy God. There's no way that unholy man can stand in his presence. You and I cannot stand there by our own righteousness, by our own goodness. There is no one in here good enough to do that. But in his holiness, he satisfied that by our great substitute, Jesus, the one who is talking here, who not only will go to the cross and die, he will go to the cross and die as a holy, sinless, blameless, pure sacrifice and substitute on our behalf. God is holy. It showed him loving that he would even provide such a mediator, that he would even provide such a substitute to you and me who rebelled against him and who did not want any part of his life or his way, who wanted to be our own gods, just as Adam and Eve did. That was their problem in the garden. Satan said, hey, you eat of that tree, you'll be just like God. That's our problem. We just really want to be like him. We want to be him. and We want to rule our own destiny. But God loved us so much that he provided a mediator, a redeemer, a savior, and such a friend for son for sinful man as the co-eternal Son of God. He was wise, he was faithful, he was holy, and he was loving. And so the Father is glorified in what is about to take place immediately in this crucifixion. But the crucifixion also brought glory to the Son. 
Because in the Son, we see it glorifying His compassion, His patience, and His power. It showed Him to be most compassionate in dying for us. His, his compassion was overflowing in that He gave Himself in our place. He who knew no sin became sin, that we who have no righteousness might become the very righteousness of God. I mean, what a compassionate Savior we see in Christ, and His compassion is glorified. He's also glorified as patient. He didn't, he didn't die a common death. He didn't die from old age. He didn't die by someone just slipping him some poison and him passing away peacefully. He died a violent death. He died a physically and a spiritually horrible and violent death in our place. And he showed his patience by dying that death, willingly submitting to such horrors. Don't forget, no one could take his life. The Roman soldiers couldn't. The Jewish authorities couldn't. You and I couldn't. And Satan couldn't. He gave his life voluntarily. And he showed his patience in that voluntary submitting to the horrors and the agonies that no mind in this room today can even begin to conceive. When with a word, just, just a word, he could have summoned a legion of angels. Just by saying, no more, I'm not going to endure this. Not only the physical suffering on the cross, but also the, phys- the spiritual suffering of taking on sin on him who knew no sin. He could have said, Father, enough, send the angels and get me down off this tree. That's how they mocked him. If you're the son of God, just say it. Surely your father will remove you from the cross. But he patiently endured it. He didn't summon his father's angels he, when he could have been set free. It showed his power. And that there on that cross, on that cross, he bore the weight of the sin of the world. The world's transgressions, the world's sin, the world's ungodliness, the world's unrighteousness for all who believe. And in that power, he bore that tra- those transgressions, but he also vanquished Satan to defeat and despoiled him of all his prey. When Jesus hung there and said, it is finished, that was not a cry. It was not a cry of defeat. We've talked about that before. It was a cry of victory. When he said, it is finished, he wasn't saying, okay, I'm just going to have to die at the hands of these evil people. He said, it is finished. My plan, my purpose, my sacrifice, the atonement has been accomplished right here, right now. And Satan has been ultimately and totally defeated. So you see, the Father is glorified. The Son is glorified in what in human terms is the most horrible act that ever took place on the face of the earth. They're glorified in it. So Jesus says, on the base of that glorification, here's what I want you to do. Here's what I command you to do. A new commandment I give to you. you you've heard the old commandments. Don't you know, honor your father and mother. Worship the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. All, all the old commandments. Don't steal. Don't, don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't covet. Don't all those things. I'm giving you a new commandment. Here's the key. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. You know, I always hated in Scripture when Jesus and and even the Apostle Paul 
puts this little caveat after telling us something to do and puts the caveat, you know, as God has done for you. Forgive one another, Paul said in Ephesians 4, forgive one another as as God in Christ has forgiven you. It would have been a lot easier if he just said, just forgive one another, and I could justify maybe some non-forgiveness when people really hurt me. He said, no, you forgive one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you completely, totally, without reservation, without holding anything back. He has forgiven you who have believed. So Jesus says here, I give you a new commandment, love one another. Okay, I could live with that if he just left it there. But he said, love one another as I have loved you. I lay down my life for you. I give myself for you. I give everything I am for you. I hold nothing back. I suffer the agonies of the cross and the agonies of sin being poured out on myself who didn't deserve it. I take all that on for you. Now love one another even as I have loved you. That you also love one another. He emphasizes it. He restates it. So here's the deal. You're to love one another. And he doesn't mean just in word. He doesn't mean walking around saying, oh, I love you, brother. <laughs> love you, sister. And go on your merry way. It means get involved in one another's lives. Care about one another. Minister to one another. Effectively be involved with one another. You've got to know one another to do that. Just love one another. When somebody's hurting, cry with them. When somebody's laughing and enjoy, laugh with them. When somebody has a need that you can meet, meet that need. When when somebody needs just an ear to listen, listen. Don't be caught up in Christian jargon and and just kind of casual, superficial conversation. You know, we talked about, hey, how are you? I'm fine, good, bye. Listen, share, be a part of one another's lives. He said, this is what I want you to do. And old Peter's sitting there still remembering, he said he's going to leave. And we can't go with him. And like he told the Jewish authorities that, that they're going to look for him, but it's too late. They won't find him. Now he's telling us we're going to look for him. And he's gonna... Peter has not heard a word he said. As a matter of fact, later on, Dan dealt with this the other night, later on, in, uh, in the end of John, when after Jesus has been resurrected and is there with the disciples on the seashore, he's going to look at Peter and say, Peter, do you love me? Three times he's going to ask him that. And three times he's going to say, then feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Then tend my lambs. Peter, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. And each time Peter said, Lord, you know I love you. Not one time. Did Peter say to, did Jesus say to Peter, Peter, do you love sheep? Peter, do you love my lambs? Peter, do you love sheep? But he said, Peter, if you love me, then you will minister to them. If you love me, the love that you have for me will flow out of your life and into the lives of those who are part of your body. Of my body. 
It'll flow out in the lives of those who are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And it won't be a superficial love. It won't be a a, a candy, syrupy type love. It'll be a love that is genuine, a love that is involved. Now, now we know from the story of the Good Samaritan that we're supposed to love our neighbor as ourselves. Everybody out there, everybody's our neighbor, even those who are different from us. Here Jesus is bringing it in just a little closer, and he's saying, now what I want you to see here is that you're to love those who are genuine believers. You're to love those who are part of your body. You're to love those who are part of the body of Christ. And then he says this, by that love, by that love, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. I think the first sermon I ever read on this was a a sermon back in 1971. Dates me a little bit. Most of you weren't even born in 1971. Weren't even thought of. In 1971, I read a sermon entitled The Mark of the Christian by Francis Schaeffer. And in that, Francis Schaeffer made a comment that just drilled into my heart. He said this, In this statement, Jesus is giving the world a right to judge you. In this passage, Jesus is giving the world, lost people out there, the right to look at you and say, yeah, I believe you're really a believer. I believe you're really a disciple of Jesus Christ. I believe you really do belong to Christ. Or to say, you don't look like it. You say, well, I try to show my non-Christian friends I'm a Christian because I wear a cross around my neck or put a bumper sticker on my car I quit doing that a long time ago because my driving is not always what it ought to be so I don't identify in that put a cross or a lapel pin or cross earrings ladies uh I hope but uh you know you, you got all these different ways you say oh well, I'm I'm showing them I'm a Christian Jesus said listen none of that's the mark of a Christian None of that's the badge of a disciple. Here's the badge of a disciple. Do you love one another? You say, well, you know, I know know some people in my church that I don't agree with on some things, and and I don't don't like the way they look. I don't like the way they they talk sometimes. I don't like this. I don't like that. I, I don't know. How do I love them? Because if you love Christ, you'll love them. One of my favorite books, written by C.S. Lewis, is the Screwtape Letters. If you've never read those, you ought to take time. They're written from the perspective of the chief tempter in hell. He's writing to his nephew, and he writes to his nephew who is a, a, a novice tempter. He's just gone out into the world to start his career of tempting people, and he's been assigned a client or a patient. And between letter one and letter two, the client becomes a Christian. He trusts Christ. And all that just you know, makes Wormwood unhappy and just makes everybody unhappy. And, and, and so Screwtape, writing to his nephew Wormwood, writes this. It, it's a little lengthy, but I want you to hear it. I think it, I think it fits. Dear nephew, I, I note with grave displeasure that your patient has become a Christian. Now remember, the enemy here is God in the letters, written from satanic side. I know with grave displeasure that your patient has become a Christian. 
do not indulge the hope that you will escape the usual penalties. Indeed, in your better moments, I trust you would hardly even wish to do so. In the meantime, we must make the best of the situation. There is no need to despair. Hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn into the enemy's camp and are now back with us fully again. All the habits of the patient, both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. One of our great allies at present is the church itself. Now, I'm I'm not referring to... uh, Don't misunderstand me. I don't mean the church as we see her spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity past, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle that makes even our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite invisible to humans. All your patient sees is the half-finished sham Gothic erection on the new building estate. When he goes inside, he sees the local grocer with a rather oily expression on his face, bustling up to offer him one shiny little book containing a liturgy which neither of them understands and another shabby little book containing corrupt music and text and a number of religious lyrics, most of them very bad, and in very small print. When he gets to his pew and he looks around, he sees that selection of his neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided. You want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors. Make his mind flit to and fro between an expression like, quote, the body of Christ, end quote, and the actual faces in the next pew. It matters little Very little, of course, what kind of people that the next pew really contains. You may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side. No matter. Your patient, thanks to our Father below, is a fool. Provided that any one of those neighbors sing out of tune, or have boots that squeak, or double chins, or odd clothes the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore somehow be ridiculous. At his present stage, you see, he has no no idea of Christians in his mind, which he supposes to be spiritual, but which in fact is largely pictorial. His mind is full of togas and sandals and bare legs. And the mere fact that the other people in church wear modern clothes is real, though of course an unconscious difficulty to him. Never let it come to the surface. Never let him ask what he expected them to look like. Keep everything hazy in his mind now. And you will have all eternity wherein to amuse yourself by producing in him a peculiar kind of charity which only hell affords. Work hard. Work hard then on the disappointment or anticlimax which is certainly coming to the patient during these first few weeks as a churchman. The enemy allows this disappointment to occur 
on the threshold of every human endeavor. It occurs when the boy who has been enchanted in the nursery story, in the nursery by stories from the Odyssey, buckles down to really learning Greek. Sadly, we don't do that anymore with our children. It occurs when lovers have gotten married and they begin the real task of learning to live together. In every department of life, it marks the transition from, dream, from a dreaming aspiration to laborious doing. The enemy takes this risk because he has a curious fantasy. The enemy is God. He has a curious fantasy of making all these disgusting little human vermin into what he calls free lovers and servants. Sons and daughters is the word that he uses with his invenerable love of degrading the whole spiritual world by unnatural liaisons with the two-legged animals. Desiring their freedom, he therefore refuses to carry them by mere affections and habits to any of the goals which he sets before them. He leaves them to do it on their own somewhat by his grace. And there lies our opportunity. But also remember, there lies our danger. If once they get through this initial dryness successfully, they become much less dependent on emotion and therefore much harder to tempt. You see, Wormwood tells, excuse me, Screwtape tells Wormwood, just get them to looking around them. There'll be people with bad breath. There'll be people who sing out of tune. There'll be people who squeak when they walk. They'll have funny clothes on. They'll wear bow ties. He didn't say that. Get them to looking at all the wrong things so that they won't love one another. They'll get mad at one another. They'll pout with one another. And they'll never talk about it. They'll go on their merry way, and Satan will be honored, and the church will be weakened because of it. Disciples, a new commandment I give to you, and he's talking to you and me too, not just to those 11 left after, Peter, after Judas leaves. A new commandment I give to you, love one another, not with some kind of superficial, syrupy love, love one another even as I have loved you. Also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. You know, we talk about us at Grace here being a covenant family. We have a church covenant. That church covenant, when you join, you say, yes, I agree to this. All that church covenant says, a lot of words. Well, all it says is, I'm going to love the body. I'm going to love the family. I'm going to be a part of this covenant family. I'm going to touch their lives and let them touch my life. And if there's disagreement, it says in there, then we'll resolve it because that's what Christ would have us do. Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. Show that you're my disciples. Later on, he's going to say in John 17, I pray that you make them one based on this love. You make them one, not just so you'll prove to be my disciple, but so that the whole world will know that I really am who I say I am. That's a lot of responsibility. 
but a lot of truth. And Jesus is building this in. A new commandment. Hear this. Verily, verily, I'm going to leave. Hear this. A new commandment I give you. Hear this. And Peter doesn't say, now, Lord, tell me exactly what it means to love one another. Peter's still hung up on, you're leaving. Where are you going to go? Lord, Lord, where are you going? Why are you going? What do you mean you're departing? Listen, I want to go with you. I want to go with you right now. And, and Jesus said, listen, where I'm going, you can't follow me now, but you'll follow me later. And Peter did, crucified, by tradition upside down. He died a horrible death as a martyr for the king. For the Lord. But Peter said, Lord, I want to go now. I want to go where you're going now, and I don't care what it takes. I will die for you. I will lay down my life for you. I'm sure Jesus was saying, yes, you will, Peter, but just not right now in his mind. And then he tells Peter, before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. We'll get to that later. Here's what I want you to see. We see the glorification of the Father and the Son. We see the new commandment to love one another. That will be our badge, that will be our mark. But then these verses with Peter show us how self-ignorant we can be. Even of our own condition. You know, even in the heart of a true believer. Peter was a true disciple. He really was a believer, but he was ignorant of himself and his own biases, his own pride. And he said, Lord, I want to argue with you. I want to go with you now. Don't leave us. Stay here. Let us. Let me go with you. I'll die for you. And Jesus said, will you really lay down your life? You're going to deny me. When we get to that denial, we're going to talk about fatal flaws and commitment that even exist in Peter and many times exist in our lives too. But here's what I want you to see today, and I'll close with this. The servant of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the, the children of God in the church would do very well to remember things like what Paul told the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 10, 12, he said, Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall." Peter, I'll die with you. Just a few hours later, I don't know him. Pride can tell us that we'll do a lot of things until the pressure comes. And if we don't pay attention to what Jesus says is important, if we don't saturate our hearts and saturate our lives with his word, his truth, and his presence, let me tell you something. You can talk big about how big a Christian I am, but when the pressure comes, you will fall. We go to illustration after illustration of Scripture. My favorite's Elijah on Mount Carmel, calling down fire on the altar to prove that God is God and Baal is not. And just a day later, putting, sitting under a juniper tree, saying, Lord, just let me die. Jezebel's after me. He didn't want to die or he wouldn't have run from her. He just stayed there. She would have gladly obliged him. Elijah stood firm and then immediately 
thought he was, would never fall, and he found himself falling. Peter did the same thing. To you and me, hear the words of the Apostle Paul. Be careful. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. There has to be a humble sense of our own innate weakness. A constant dependence on the strong and mighty power of Almighty God. A daily prayer to be held up because we cannot hold up ourselves. These are the true secrets to success. Not dependence on me, but dependence on Him. Not walking in my strength, because Paul said to the second, in the second, letter, the second letter of the Corinthians, in 12.10, he said, When I am weak, what? I can't hear you. Then I'm strong. When I recognize my weakness, that I can't do this, I can't stand in the face of Satan's onslaught. I can't stand in the face of sin. I can't even stand in the face of my own pride. I will fall unless I recognize that he is the strong one. He is the source of my dependency. He is the one that I must have and I must live in accordance with or I fall. Love one another, even as Christ has loved you. It's a tall order, folks. And if you miss it and get your eyes on something else, why he's leaving, where he's going, why you can't go, why he won't let you do this, why you can't have this ministry, why you can't have your way here, why you can't have... If you get caught on anything other than focusing on what he desires in your life, you fall, you fail. It's not just you that suffers. It's the body. I wish I could stand here today and say to you, folks, love like I do, because I do it perfectly. That would be a lie. I don't. I want to. I really desire to. I really want to love you as Christ loves me. I really want to minister to you because I love Christ. Even if you got bad breath, funny clothes, whatever, doesn't matter. That's his desire for us in this body. And that's what he's talking about here. We're not talking about, okay, you got to go find Christians that aren't here and love them. Well, you ought to love them if you find them. He's talking about within the local assembly, within the local body, among Christians who know each other. You know, sometimes it's a lot harder. Lewis went on to say this in another letter. I didn't bring that, but went on to say, you know, it's it's a lot hard, it's a lot easier to love Christians that you don't know than those you do know. You know my, you know my problems. I know some of yours. We're to love one another because Christ loves us. And Christ showed that love to the nth 
deepest degree. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to you for the grace that you have shown us in Christ Jesus. We are grateful for you, to you for, the, for his sacrifice and your Holy Spirit's bringing it and applying it, empowering us with it in our life. Lord, I didn't deserve that. Now you tell me to take that same type of love, the same love you love me with and love other believers. And by that prove I belong to you. Lord, I wish you'd just told us to wear a cross. I wish you'd just told us to have a fish pen on our lapel. But Lord, you didn't. Anybody can wear a cross, and many who are unbelievers do. But only believers, redeemed by your grace and filled with your Spirit, can wear this badge. Help us wear it, O oh Lord. Lord, I repent of when I don't love like you love me. Bring us to that repentance, O oh Lord, and be glorified through it. Father, I pray for men and women and young people here this morning that don't know Christ. We're about to sing a great hymn, All I Have is Christ. They can't say that right now. I pray, Father, you bring them to faith in Christ. Pray, Lord, you break their hearts over their sin and bring them to trust in the Savior and confess that before men. Your word says if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord before others and believe in our heart God raised him from the dead, we will be saved, period. Father, do your work in lives this morning that need that work. Maybe young people that you've been working in through the the D-Now weekend through Saturate. Oh, Lord, use that and use this morning to lead them to confess you publicly. Father, for others who just need to deal with things where they sit and where they stand before you and with you, do your work in their life, oh, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.